This podcast is a production of Open Pediatrics, an open access online community of healthcare professionals sharing best practices from around the world. Visit openpediatrics.org for more. Hello and welcome to the World Shared Practices Forum. I'm Dr. Tracy Wolbrink, a pediatric intensivist at Boston Children's Hospital and co-director of Open Pediatrics. I'm delighted today to be joined by Dr. Suchitra Ranjit and Dr. Luren Schlappbach. Dr. Ranjit is a senior consultant and head of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Apollo Children's Hospital in Chennai, India. Dr. Schlappbach is a professor and the head of the Department of Intensive Care and Neonatology at University Children's Hospital Zurich in Switzerland. I'm really excited to speak today with Drs. Ranjit and Schlappbach as they were the first and last authors of a recently published paper in Lancet Child Health entitled Hemodynamic Support for Pediatric Septic Shock, A Global Perspective. Welcome, Suchitra and Lurin. Thank you. Thank you so much. I guess to start, I was hoping that you might uh, be able to let our listeners know about what was your stimulus for the paper? What was the problem you were trying to solve? And why did you feel that this was an important paper to write? So there was this really important paper, Tracy, where for a change, it was all about the global burden of sepsis in children and neonates, which came out in Lancet Respiratory Medicine. And uh, Lorraine was one of the co-authors. As an intensivist in India, I get these calls and SOS kind of messages. Like I've got this child in front of me. I've given a bunch of fluid. I've started some inotrope. The child is not better. What do I do? So, you know, I mean, I think in India, like in many LMICs, there's this vast swathe of countries that do not fit the high-income countries, of course, but do not really fit a zero ICU, zero intensive care kind of facility either. So it's somewhere straddling both, more of a heavy foot on the low-income side, of course, but there is income, there is intensive care, and there are families who want to save their children. So the guidelines kind of don't really help this bunch of people. And there's this great article that came out by adult intensivists in intensive care medicine about newer concepts, newer ways to address the same problem, which seem to have really good results. So I just discussed with Luren, why don't we try to you know, write a similar article in children and maybe initiate a debate and get people thinking and really get together some sepsis experts from around the world and put their heads together and come up with something to help practitioners and their the child in front of them. That's fantastic. And obviously, you assembled an incredible group of authors. And I wondered if you wouldn't mind just explaining how you chose your authors and how you were able to get such an impressive group to come together and write this paper. Yeah, I wonder. I don't know how they said yes, but most people, I think 95% agreed in the first instance. And a few, they went along and they kind of got a hang of what we were trying to do. They agreed. So of course, there was more than 50% of the authors are on the Surviving Sepsis Guideline writing group as well. So we didn't want this to be seen in any way as a competition or a separate guideline, even for LMICs. Once that was established, most people were willing to pitch in and share their expertise. Yeah, I think the, the point that Sushitra just made is really key. We reached out to colleagues and experts from various parts of the world based on their track record. And it was very clear from the start that this is not a guideline. This is not intended to be a guideline. This was written and is essentially conceptual 
framework, which hopefully helps to stimulate the discussion. That's fantastic. Let's dive into your paper a little bit here. Suchitra, I wonder if you might just sort of walk us through kind of the key points of the paper that you think are the most important and that our authors should really be aware of as they go through this paper. That's a little bit of a challenging question, <laughs> Tracy. On the surface, it's such a simple intervention, just a bag of clear fluids. And it's so simple to administer, nothing matches the ease of fluids in terms of cardiovascular support. It can be done anywhere with minimal training. And yet, there is a lot of controversy. And I guess it was just said in the same breath, recognize shock, administer fluids, take cultures, antibiotics. It was just one single bundle in one approach, in one breath virtually. And nobody really questioned it. So in that way, it was the fee study kind of brought cracks in that understanding. And after that, there was so many more papers and thoughts both in adults and pediatric literature that maybe quite so much fluids may not be required. Is sepsis really a hypovolemic kind of fluid losing state? There were all these exciting and thought-provoking arguments. So I guess the most important would be a change in the way we see the requirement for fluid in children with septic shock and that different children may require different volumes and it's really not a one size fits all. And that might be, I think the most important change that we proposed. Fantastic. Along those lines, you know, you mentioned a lot about challenges in the recognition of early septic shock and how this can be improved. And I wonder if you might describe a little bit more detail of what this looks like. We're always comparing and contrasting with adult septic shock and pediatric. And in adults, it's so simple. It's all based on the presence of hypotension, right? Low blood pressure. So a systolic less than 90 and a MAP less than 65. It's shock. It's so simple. But children across these ages, wide age group, a heart rate of 100 would be bradycardic in a neonate and tachycardic in an adolescent. So there's this wide ranges of numbers. There's such, and children, we know that children can be in shock for the longest time without dropping their blood pressure. So there's this various challenges which make it quite hard to pick up children early, even in teaching centers, let alone, you know, the periphery and smaller health centers. Fabulous. And Lauren, I wonder if you might just sort of add in your perspective from more high-income countries. What are challenges that you see as being similar? Are there any other unique challenges that you sort of see in your environment? So previous guidelines, you know, for example, the, the American Critical Care College guidelines, the algorithm starts with recognize sepsis, give antibiotics and start giving fluids. And the point actually is that the recognition of sepsis or septic shock can be very tricky. And at this stage, we still don't really know what's the best approach to it. Most approaches that have been tested are based on physiological derangements. And mostly these are based on respiratory, cardiovascular, and neurologic signs and symptoms, you know, such as altered mentation, capillary refill, tachycardia, blood pressure, or in you know, a work of breathing. And so in some ways, this is actually very similar when you compare high-income settings and low-income settings. I think the difference between how we as pediatricians actually have traditionally defined septic shock that 
not only as a requirement for blood pressure, but as well for other factors such as perfusion markers. I think this is really important when we, you know, we talk about the figure two in the paper here, because the way we define pediatric shock at the moment for children or how we try and recognize it at the bedside already includes both pressure as well as flow parameters, right? So of course, if a child is hypotensive, this is not good and this, it should prompt us you know, to act immediately. But at the same time, we may have children which maintain still the blood pressure as Sushitra explained, but where actually the perfusion is already substantially compromised, leading to poor extremities, for example, or altered mentation. And these low flow states or abnormal flow states, for example, you know, we need to recognize early. You mentioned figure two as you were describing your response there. And I've heard from a lot of my colleagues who have read your article about how much they love figure two and the way that you set this up, thinking about flow, pressure, and filling and the different interventions and how you can evaluate the response. And I'm, I'm wondering, just this is a podcast and we're sort of speaking rather than looking at it. I wonder, Dr. Ranjit, if you wouldn't mind just kind of walking through the key take-homes of figure two just for our listeners out there. Basically, the philosophy or the reason for the figure was to cater to the fact that children may need predominantly one therapy more than the other. So the three pillars of therapy are either fluid or a predominant inotrope or a predominant presser. So there's three pillars of treatment and a given child might need more or less of one treatment. Right, and how do we know that when we first present? Right, if we just give a lot of fluid or a lot of pressure or inotrope, each of these can be harmful. So, just based on very simple available tools at the bedside. So, when I teach my students, I tell them, listen to the patient. If you say flow, pressure, and filling, flow represents the cardiac output, how well the heart is pumping, right? So if the extremities are nice and warm and the pulses are strong, it's very likely that the heart is doing a great job, right? Whereas if the extremities are really cold and the pulses are hard to feel, the cap refill is delayed, maybe the cardiac output is low. And the cardiac output can be low either if there's inadequate filling or if there's a decreased cardiac function. So then the history becomes important. Right. So if you have a child who's cold with poorly perfused extremities, they may need fluid or they could need an inotrope. If the parents give a clear history of a fluid loss, right, and there's diarrhea, there's vomiting, there's decreased intake. So it's quite simple. Go ahead and give the fluid. And after the fluid, it's like a test of the circulation. So basically listen to the patient, what's happening to the flow parameters. What's happened to those pulses? Have they picked up or they're still weak? What's happened to the pressure parameters? So classically intensivists always think about systolic blood pressure, the MAP, but they tend to overlook the diastolic blood pressure and the pulse pressure, right? So the diastolic blood pressure is really, really useful to tell you about vascular tone. And the Fascinating thing about fluids is that it's been shown in animal studies in adults, and we've shown it in children also that fluids can sometimes vasodilate and drop the diastolic blood pressures. So after you give the fluids, look at the flow, look at the pressure parameters with an eye on the diastolic. 
and look at filling or tolerance parameters. So we would call it fluid overload right after 10 ml per kg of fluid because we've just given a little bit. But if they're showing signs of intolerance, so it's leaking somewhere or the heart is not liking that fluid, there's going to be signs that the child is not liking it. So listen to the patient, listen to the entire story, which includes flow parameters, pressure parameters, and filling parameters. That's fantastic. Yeah. And, you know, as I listen to you describe your figure, you know, the thing that comes to mind for me is just how individualized this is and how we have to think about each patient in terms of their unique physiological needs as you're describing. And then I sort of started thinking about personalized medicine and getting more into sort of precision-based care. And I'm curious, Lauren, you have written a little bit about machine learning and artificial intelligence. And I'm, I'm curious how you see these next steps of personalized medicine using these large models. And is there any evidence of this at the bedside in practice at the moment? Or where do you think we're going in terms of this space? I think there's a huge promise in there. At the moment, in terms of sepsis, in particular pediatric sepsis, the two areas where large data sets are being applied, to the best of my knowledge, is really on one side, the very early part. So how can we improve the early recognition? And then on the other side is a relatively late part where you have children shocked on organ or multi-organ support in ICU, where in particular, the question of immune modulation comes up, right? And what's Actually, we're discussing here is personalization using actually some of the most common interventions that we use as intensivists, you know, as, as shown in, in the diagram, vasopressors, inotropes, fluids at the bedside. And maybe it's time as well that we leverage off larger data sets to try and improve how can we improve treatment of these patients there. There's one very nice paper in Nature Medicine that came out two years ago, which used large adult data sets and had essentially like an artificial intelligence algorithm trying to decide whether giving more fluid or more inotropes was the better thing for adults with sepsis. And interestingly, actually, you know, the, this is sort of a Markov type model that rewarded good decisions made by the algorithm. The algorithm ended up actually giving less and less fluid. So it's interesting that this approach sort of goes towards the direction of maybe strategies that end up using less fluids have their promise for patients. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And I think that's a really great example of the use of this kind of technology. And I kind of want to bring us back to the bedside, if that's all right. And Suchitra, you obviously have been working at the bedside in intensive care units for many years. You're an expert clinician. I've been to your ICU. I've seen the kind of care that's delivered. And I wonder, for our trainees that might be listening, could you walk us through exactly you receive a patient who's in septic shock? What do you do when you go to the bedside? How would you apply this figure? and sort of talk us through your initial steps and how you might work through that algorithm, if you don't mind. We do exactly like in the figure, but what we would do is perhaps a little earlier, we do ultrasound and echo a little earlier, simply because we have the machine. I don't really think it's necessary in the early stages. Like I said, the fluid is the easiest thing to do. And as soon as they are recognized to be in shock, just 10 mils per kilogram would be started over half an hour. And the emergency people, if the child isn't getting better, they alert our team very quickly. We have a portable echo machine and we go down with it and assess what's going on. But truly over time, I feel that some of those images can overrule your clinical judgment. 
right? So I think the figure still works well on its own without an early echo, but because you asked what we do in our units, that would be it. We do echo very early and keep rechecking. Apart from the clinical signs, we also see, look for changes in how the heart is behaving and how the lungs are. So in my mind, the echo, which is looking at the heart, the lungs, and the IBC, is really an extension of the clinical examination. For example, if you give a little bit fluid and you look for a gallop, you listen for a gallop, you might oscillate over the lung fields to listen for crackles. You might feel for a liver span increase. So that's exactly what the echo is doing as well. But having said that, that's nice when it's there, but I find it very exciting that each child is so unique. And then it's always a challenge. Okay, this child is going to behave how? You've just given you a bit of fluid. Which way are you going to go? What are you going to show us? What are you going to tell us about what you need and what you don't need, right? So it's quite interesting the way the pulse pressure widens with fluids, right? So that's a very clear, even if they're, they're seemingly tolerant of fluids and don't have new respiratory signs, once the pulse pressure is widening, so the systolic blood pressure and MAP may, systolic may be going up, MAP is almost the same, but the diastolic is drifting downwards. So that's a very good sign that we need to add something to prop up the vascular tone, such as a very low dose norepinephrine, right? So use at 0.05 or so. It's a very tiny dose. I mean, while most people would think that the norepinephrine is a presser, helps the blood pressure, maybe it raises the diastolic blood pressure. I think it does much more than improve the blood pressure. Like we discussed, all the fluid, they seem to be fluid responsive. If you do the fluid responsiveness test, it looks as if they need more and more and more fluid. But it's just a question of fluid sitting in the wrong place. They haven't actually lost fluid. So the norepinephrine kind of gently squeezes the dilated venous capacitance vessel. So wherever the fluids are sitting, the norepi kind of squeezes it and urges the fluid to come back to the heart. Right? So it improves the preload without a drop of fluid. And unlike a fluid bolus, the effect may not be sustained for more than an hour or so. 90% of the effects wear off by an hour. When you use early norepinephrine, you're actually reversing the pathophysiology and the effect is sustained. So we could actually demonstrate that fluid responsiveness markers decreased after norepinephrine, even without fluid. And so when you think of septic shock, there's fluid requirement, which norepi addresses. There's a vas low vascular tone, which norepi addresses, and a cardiac dysfunction. So most children, mild and moderate cardiac dysfunction, it, it's adequately kind of taken care of because it gives a bit of anotropy without any increased work, such as prone, I mean, making the heartbeat faster and faster. About one-fifth of patients on norepinephrine need an additional anotrope. So the heart is really, you know, struggling and the, the, it can't, the heart cannot tolerate whatever increase in afterload has been now imposed on it. It's very clear. And how do we know that even without an echo? If those bounding pulses suddenly become hard to feel, right? 
if it, the heart rate goes up, norepi doesn't have much chronotropy, but the heart rate going up means the heart is struggling, right? Suddenly the lungs have become wet. So the heart, again, it's a sign that is struggling. So even without an echo, I find that fascinating how the entire picture can change. It's like the child is actually telling you a story, what he or she needs, but we need to listen. Obviously, throughout this entire podcast and in your article, both your, both you and Lauren have been describing a lot about fluids. And I wonder if you can sort of dive in a little bit. You dedicated two whole figures to fluids, figure one and figure three. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about why this topic is so contentious and what's the evidence behind fluids and the benefit, harm sort of ratio there. So I think what's important to consider is the best evidence that's out there in relation to fluid boluses in children relates to the FEAST study. And the FEAST study was conducted, you know, just over 10 years ago in a setting where no intensive care support could be provided. And it has shown very, very clearly across different types of fluids, across different patient strata, it has shown that fluid boluses in these settings actually, you know, substantially increase mortality. And this is the reason why in the surviving sepsis guideline, you know, we've made a clear distinction. If you work in settings where no intensive care support can be provided, you know, the feast evidence applies. But the question really is, what do we do, as Sushitra pointed out, in many, many settings around the world where at least some intensive care support can be provided? And is it really that feast does not apply or are there actually lessons to be learned from feast that matter? in particular in low and middle income settings, but I do wonder, you know, if, if actually they matter to the same degree, maybe even in high income countries. And so that's sort of the departure point. And I think the history, you know, has taken us from the experience that fluids can be extremely effective in fluid depleted states. And, you know, the, the origins of intravenous fluid therapy was cholera. Sir Thomas Lauter described in the Lancet almost 200 years ago. And he describes in this paper how essentially the soul came back to the body after, you know, infusion with the first sort of semi-physiologic fluid. But, you know, cholera is a, is, is a classic hypovolemic state. And I think then in the past decades, the recognition that children with sepsis who have late resuscitation have worse outcomes became more and more noted. And so this led to a concept that actually early aggressive resuscitation actually may save, save lives. At the moment, what we realized that possibly the most important part of a sepsis bundle actually is time to antibiotics. And it's not that clear actually whether the time to fluids or the amount of fluids to what degree this is responsible as well for associations between delayed resuscitation and increased mortality in sepsis. You know, the adults data from New York State, for example, have shown that there was a very strong association of time to antibiotics with increased mortality, but no association of time to fluids and, and mortality, right? And so I think this field then has been evolving that people say, well, actually, if we say, you know, resuscitation, what do we really mean? What component is antibiotics? What common is fluids? And when we talk about fluid, so then the question came up, well, what type? Is it the type of fluid? Is it the amount of fluid? Is it the speed of fluid? And I think it's clear that we still do not understand these aspects as well. There are emerging data in adults, but as well in children that suggest that maybe there's a benefit of balanced fluids, such as Hartman's or, you know, plasmalite. But until the prompt study, which is being conducted 
in the US, Canada, and Australia. Until we have these data, we actually won't have the evidence to really tell us whether balanced fluids are better, right? But that's the type of fluid. But then the other question is sort of the amount and speed of fluid. And the, the initial or the recommendations from previous surviving sepsis campaigns to very, very quickly push in fluids up to 60 mils per kilo more in the first, you know, 15 minutes or even 60 minutes. This may have led to fluid overload in some patients or actually have exacerbated fluid accumulation in the lungs, for example, with a decrease in oxygenation. And there's a very nice study from India, which actually shows that oxygenation index decreases already just if a fluid bolus is given quicker. And so based on this, I think there's a real, a real need to have better evidence on how should we use fluids or what type of fluid sparing strategies actually may be suitable in particular for children with sepsis. In adults, we've just seen last year two very nice studies in the New England Journal of Medicine, or the classic study and the Clover study, which using a relatively similar design, randomized adults with hypotensive septic shock, one group more in ED patients, one group more in, in ICU patients to a fluid restrictive re regimen or not. And the first thing they both have shown actually, it is very, very feasible with such approaches to reduce the amount of fluid, you know, by you know, between one and three liters in the first 24 hours. And the second point is they've shown it was safe, right? What it has not shown, actually, none of these studies suggested that it was beneficial. But I think based on these studies, we should really think about approaches in children. You know, what would be fluid sparing approaches in which patients should we test them? And we need to study them. And I guess the first possible approach is to start earlier with inotropes. And then, of course, the question comes, which inotrope and how early is early, right? When it comes to which inotrope, we don't have the data at the moment to tell us whether norepinephrine or epinephrine is better. In adults, you know, norepinephrine is, is the first line choice based on consideration of you know, dealing with vasoplegia, the benefits that Sushitra mentioned, and as well, considerations about arrhythmias in older patients. In children, if we postulate that myocardial dysfunction is, is more common, then you may be an inotrope component such as adrenaline may work, but we do not know which one is better. What we do know is that the studies that have been published today suggest that giving either epinephrine or norepinephrine peripherally using a diluted administration is safe and actually can really speed up time to inotropes. And I think that's a message that we still need to work on to get out there more, more clearly. Because I think in many, many settings, we see a lot of children that come from ED to ICU. They've had a lot of fluids or they've given steroids, bronchodilators, antibiotics. There's many, many treatments that we probably use in, in more patients than what are needed, right? Except inotropes. We very, very rarely, at least in the settings I've worked in, we, we very rarely receive kids coming on inotropes from ED to ICU. And we say, actually, this is excessive. We don't need these inotropes. We can stop them. To me, this is an indicator that probably we don't use inotropes enough. And so maybe our thresholds to start with inotropes are too high, in particular in settings outside ICU. And maybe that's one of the paradigms that we have to just start challenging. Why not start inotropes earlier in these patients, but we need evidence to tell us actually which inotrope and when and how. Thank you so much for that. You mentioned also a little bit about evidence. And there's a lot of evidence that's unknown. And I wonder if maybe you could walk us through, what do you see as our, our next steps, our next studies, what evidence needs to be generated to allow us to make these decisions a little bit better, maybe starting with the high income countries and then Suchitra, maybe your ideas and thoughts about low and middle income countries as well. So I think at that level here, I see 
some very fundamental questions to be answered. The first question is actually what type of fluid? And I think for this, the Prompt-Bolus study now hopefully will give us the answers. The second point really is when to recognize sepsis, how, and what is the best time to intervene? For this, you know, maybe data-driven approach is, you know, maybe very good. Next point I really see about timing and type of inotropes to start. The larger study, which I was told from colleagues from Canada has just been completed. It's a squeeze trial where actually patients were enrolled after 40 mils per kilo of fluid when inotropes were started rather than actually having receiving further fluid before starting inotrope. So I think that will be tremendous actually to see these results, but the restrictive arm essentially starts after 40 mils per kilo of fluid, which some clinicians may already now consider is actually a considerable amount of fluid. So the question is actually, can we shift that goalpost towards earlier? We're just publishing a paper in pediatric critical care medicine on another pilot on 40 patients, the RespondED study from Australia, where we tried and see if using adrenaline already after 20 mils per kilo of fluid was feasible. And again, the findings there show that actually such protocols are, are really feasible. So I do think that these are indications as to how trials could be conducted in the future. But I think the next step then should really be maybe we need trial platforms that allow us to combine these questions. And the adults, again, have shown very interesting first with the Andromeda study, which compared lactate versus capillary refill as an outcome parameter. And I think this is really key. We do need to understand what outcome metrics should be targeted. What should it be the physiological endpoint that we use to titrate our treatment? Thank you. Suchitra, any other additional thoughts? Yeah, one of the studies which we did about six years ago was just, it was an observational study where we compared, that was, so the only guideline then was the American College of Critical Care Medicine guideline, which is around 60 mils per kilogram. So we compared children who received that treatment with really early vasoactive. So we used norepinephrine after 20 to 30 mils per kg. And I think after that fluid, although it was a small study and observational, it was a paradigm shift in our own unit. So we've never gone back to giving empiric fluids. So they had to earn extra fluid after the initial 10 or 20. So it was basically most children got external jugular line for the norepinephrine. So, I mean, depending on the consultant, some of them prefer epinephrine, but we used mostly norepinephrine. And so because it kind of squeezed this dilated vasculature and improved the preload and it was sustained, very few required ventilation, very few required dialysis. And they were flying out of the ICU, provided the I mean, you know, primary disease was, of course, sorted out. So oh, that was so dramatic. So I think that was nice. and. Although it was such a small study, I think I spoke a lot about it in our Indian society meetings. So just two weeks ago, we had a survey. So we asked them, how much fluid would you give before you start anotropes? So 85% said just 20 mils per kilogram. So I'd like to think that some of what I said made a difference, but I think it is a gradual change in the way of thinking that maybe that automatic fluid may not help all children. You know, people are much more comfortable with using peripheral pressers. And after four to six hours, if the child is still needing 
escalating doses so we're not able to wean, then we switch to a central line. Thank you for highlighting both the evidence that's done and the incredible practice change that it seems like you're starting in India and our future evidence that we need to gather going forward in the future. I want to just kind of ask a couple of questions related to sort of the background of this manuscript. You had a lot of authors. I'm sure there were a lot of heated discussions and interesting discussions, and I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall during some of these conversations. You know, what were sort of some of the main points that were contentious and or that maybe didn't make it to the paper that you're willing to sort of share with us all? Well, I mean, first of all, it was, it was a great learning experience with very different perspectives. I guess it takes, the first thing to realize was that there are gaps between guidelines that many of us contributed to, and then actually what is being done in your own unit. And that range goes left to right, up and down. And some of it comes with reasons and some of it comes without reasons. And maybe that's the first point. To realize sort of, you know, as much as we like guidelines, actually it's, we do need to work on implementing guidelines and then generating evidence to tell us actually how can we keep improving on guidelines. That sort of was one. Fantastic. Thank you, Sutricha. What else do you think? Like Lorenz said, I mean, all the authors were very experienced, sepsis researchers, practitioners, and everybody's got something, a protocol that works in their unit. And when you get a bunch of experts together, it's hard to, you know, in the first few iterations to get everybody on the same page. So there were a lot of discussions, but it was all very respectful and mindful that it, there's nothing personal in it and it's just different ways to the end result of shock resolution. So yeah, I think one of the ways that I could convince people who are initially a little reluctant, perhaps not so enthusiastic, was to say that here we are, a group of 13 sepsis researchers, and maybe between us, we have collectively some expertise. So even if there's not a whole lot of evidence, maybe we can come together and, and suggest ways that may help a child that you're struggling with at the bedside. Although, Everybody needs to understand there is no trial evidence, and this is just a suggestion, something that may work. And eventually, we need to work together to ensure that there is hard evidence before it becomes widely acceptable. I love that. I mean, I think, you know, what an incredible opportunity to have these experts coming together with their best thoughts, with all the different perspectives and sharing sort of one kind of unified voice of a way to sort of think about patients and then opening up the opportunity for thinking about the future research pathway to kind of answer these questions one by one. And I'm curious, you know, for trainees and junior faculty that might be interested in doing a similar thing and sort of thinking about questions in this way, do you have any advice for them about how to get started, how to maybe think about doing a similar process? What can you share with us? We discussed this question, so Loren had a nice sentence, which I'm going to share. It's great saying we do this and we do that, but maybe it's more thought-provoking, and in the end, we could get more interesting solutions if we acknowledge that there's a whole lot we don't know, and some of the things that we do are really based on just having done it for so long, rather than really based on any evidence. So acknowledging that 
there are stuff we don't know. And if there's different practices within units between people, kind of studying what might be the physiological basis and what are the benefits and could I apply that to my own setting? Would it work? I think as the first step would be acknowledging the gaps, what we don't know, what we are unsure about, then reaching out to like-minded people, getting some mentors. So we have fantastic mentors at senior people like Tex and Andrew on board, and they were able to shepherd us when we were kind of flying in out all directions. So having senior people on board and a mix of senior, junior, and middle was just fabulous. The, the whole journey, I felt, was the most interesting part of all. It took a whole year, but it was all the exchange of views, the frequent Zoom meetings, the emails. So that was wonderful. I think I became a more diplomatic person in the end. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much for sharing that experience. So many wonderful lessons that you just pointed out to really challenge us to think about it and, and bring our community together and work collaboratively as a team. And so I appreciate you both taking the time to be here with me today. And I'm sure our learners will appreciate all the expertise that you've brought. So thank you very much. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Tracy. This has been a production of Open Pediatrics. You can find the resources and journal articles referenced in this podcast in the description. We have more podcasts like this one available everywhere you get your podcasts. Visit openpediatrics.org for more information.